Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and share their story. They might have overcome adversity or they might still be on their journey, but with stories that will make you laugh, cry and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. Today's guests do not disappoint. They are a couple who are very much in love, but playing their love story out in the public eye doesn't make facing life's challenges any easier. Ollie Locke found fame in 2011 when he became one of the original cast members of the popular Channel 4 TV show Made in Chelsea. Since stepping into the limelight, Ollie has lived out many parts of his life on screen, bringing his fans along with him, however high or low those moments may be. In 2018, Ollie found his soulmate and friend of many years, Gareth. And since then, the couple have gone from strength to strength, getting married at the end of last year and beginning their own surrogacy journey just a few months ago. With their life story being centre stage, I am so over the moon to be catching up with them today. So thank you so much for joining me, Ollie and Gareth. Yeah, that oh, thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Kate. I, I felt really uplifted reading that. It's just really nice, positive news to hear about your your life and what's been happening. I tell you what, it did make me smile. It was lovely. That was quite sweet. <laughs> that was pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose I should start with the congratulations because the wedding was was it last year you got married? Fourth of November. Yeah, yeah last year. Last year. Yeah. And how was that? Was that complex with COVID? What was quite interesting is we obviously. We had heard that the second lockdown was coming in. We were meant to get married two weeks later. We were meant to get married on the 12th, weren't we? Yep. So we we had to bring it forward eight days. Yeah. And um, so we had to basically reorganise an entire wedding. The lockdown was coming into effect on the, no, 10pm on the 4th of November. And we got married at one minute to 10. (laughs) <laughs> and it was it was that day so basically we had to bring it all forward luckily all the elements fell into place we still got to do it at the Natrician Museum luckily the flowers were there and the candles that you wouldn't have seen amount of um, so yes at one minute to ten we became the last people to get married before second lockdown yeah. in the UK and, <laughs> and also what was meant to be a wedding for 13 people which it was um, ever the wallflower and ever wanting to put my life on camera we um, ended up becoming the biggest Highest watched wedding worldwide of 2020. I saw that and I was like, isn't that really cool? And isn't that a reflection of um, we all want to see joy and happiness and joy and happiness looks different for different people. And I I thought it was brilliant how the wedding was on Made in Chelsea because I know we've seen lots of weddings on TV and in the series, but have we seen same-sex weddings on telly? I could probably count how many I've seen on TV. Yeah, I mean, there's not, I, I really don't think there was many. Um, the gist of it was, like, back at the start of 2020, we we were sort of discussing it and for what reasons we'd want to put it on TV and share it. And, like, I, both of us come from a background where, I mean, I didn't come out until I was 28. You you went through your own struggles with it. And we both sort of looked at it and thought, you know what, we, we're a gay couple. We're not what someone would stereotype as a gay couple. And we feel like... Um, it's a sort of approachable thing for people. And I think from our own experience, we thought it was probably a duty for us to be like, look, this this is a marriage. It's two men, but it's completely normal. Mm. Was that your actual ceremony we saw a made in Chelsea? Well, yeah, that was, yeah. wedding, yeah. Well, so where did you party afterwards then? That would have we been limited. We didn't. <laughs> we, we, actually, we had to have our wedding breakfast the night before. Because oh. it was at 10pm on the 4th, it was locked down, you weren't allowed to. And I, I feel like you're sort of, you know, very, bit of, you know, you're veterans in terms of filming. I would feel like you wouldn't really get too nervous filming, but then it's your real wedding day and everyone has nerves on their wedding day. How, how was that for you? Were you nervous when you were filming? 
I know it sounds a bit weird, but there was half of me saying we're filming and this is, it's like a normal filming day. And the other bit was like, actually, this is quite monumental. And I don't know. Were you nervous at all? Huh? Were you nervous at all? Yeah, I think I was. Just you hadn't properly written your vows. Yes, I hadn't written my vows because <laughs> we hadn't had time to do it because it was meant I still had two weeks to do it. I was I, like, no. So my vows were completely off the top of my head and literally like I didn't plan them. The three at months, all. the three months before we got married, all I all I had was have you written your vows? Have you written your vows? You <laughs> better write your vows. You better not come to the LC without vows. Then what happened? I did not do the vows. He ad libs <laughs> his own wedding. <laughs> he ad libs his own vows. <laughs> yeah, a bit mad. I must say, but but what from what you said about the nerves thing, like I I was nervous up until the day before the wedding and on the day of the actual wedding and obviously with understanding it's being filmed and everything, it just, I, I can't explain what the feeling was, but it just completely went and I was just excited. But yeah, it was, it was pretty phenomenal in the end. And I think, yes, you're right. Going back to the point, I think there was, I think at the end of that year, I think we were all a bit miserable. There wasn't mm. any obvious love around anywhere. It wasn't any, although it was everywhere, it was hard to find and, and we all a bit amused and upset and, and, and suddenly that came on. I think a lot of people went, well, let's have 20 minutes of something that's just glorious and happy. And, mm. and that's why I think that it, at the end of that week, it was three and a half million people watched before all four and stuff like that. So it was just, it was, we were incredibly lucky. And that was a huge number for a, especially for a new four show. So I want to go back to the early days because I don't know if you know, Ollie, but I was like massive Made in Chelsea fan in the very beginning. Yeah. So like when it was you, Spencer, Caggy, like I, I do, I felt sounding a bit old. I do think those were the best, you know, like the they old were. school. Yeah. They were just brilliant. And I'm with you entirely. That was my happiness. That was, that yeah. was really, really. It was so authentic. None of us knew what it was. It became so big as well. It was just like, do you still think it's the same show as it was back then to now? And do do because I feel like you really enjoyed it. Do you still enjoy it as much? Yes, I do enjoy it, and it's very much as, as you know. Without any production, you become a very much a family with those people, and it's that's what we love. And and we all come together. That's really lovely. It has been a decade now that we've done the show for. It's not the same show because I didn't think we know what we were doing. I think we know what we're doing now. Um, and at the beginning it was, I think we were all trying to kind of settle into what we were and and we didn't know whether it was going to work. And people now come on the show knowing they're going to get a blue tick within six months. Whereas we didn't know if ever, that wasn't exist. There wasn't, it didn't exist. There wasn't Instagram, didn't have, what wasn't there. It was only Twitter, that was it, wasn't absolutely. it? In the early day. MySpace and Twitter. Well, absolutely. It. And in those early days, we all fancied you. You were like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You were just like this dark hair, this you dressed so well. And we all fancied you and oh. we never thought anything else. And then you sort of came out, not 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 definitely, you know, it's sort of, it, it, and it was like real life, how it wasn't just one day you changed sexuality. And, you know, Gareth, you mentioned there, you didn't come out till you were 28. So... Is that something that's brought you together that you have in common? Like, you know, talk to me a bit about what that's like coming out later on in life and on telly as well. So we've known each other like near on thirteen years, haven't we? And at, at the time, both of us were dating girls. So, and both of us were. Relationships. Do you want us to make you feel really old and where we met? Go on, China Whites. Oh my gosh, that was my like. <laughs> th- I used to go Thursdays and Tuesdays. That's yeah. So oh funny, my gosh. Isn't it? Um, How and, funny. Actually, and that's a totally straight club for anyone listening. You oh, know? absolutely. And a real veteran old club. It's a real, like, it's the, one of the coolest clubs in London. So you met there as mates, right? We, we yeah. even, even more cliche, we were there at a fashion show, modelling in a fashion show. Of course you were. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it was, and I don't think we particularly 
it was fine. It was great. We were just mates and we were for a long time. Yeah, and we're all I thought Gareth was fairly boring. Well, I just thought you were about yourself. So. And um, <laughs> and that was that's where that started. And then very many years later, we went to a friend's house who said, Oh, you've got to be together. You've got to. And we were like, Well, this is absurd. Like, just because we're gay, we're not going to be together. Yeah, it's that sort of archetypal thing where people are like, Right, I've got two gay friends and they just fit together like a jigsaw piece. Which well, just... weirdly, we didn't think it would. And well, it um, very rarely does. And that night it happened. and and we sat there on a Saturday and it was snowing outside and we were sitting next to a fire and one of the dogs in the house had the most awful diarrhea. Oh my God, I've got, you've, you've got a photo. We actually came oh across God. it the other day. Ollie took a photo of it. I went, because it, it honestly, honestly stunk to high heaven. So I was like, I've got to clear this up. The owner of the house had no interest in cleaning it up. So I was like, right, there's only, if we're going to sit here, I need to go and do this. And Ollie took, I came across a photo. Like, yeah, I got a video of it and it was that very yes. moment. And it was after about 10 minutes later, I remember going home being like, oh, I think I'm going to marry him. I know I am. He's a keeper because he cleans up dog shit. It wasn't yeah. quite. And I've got a dog. <laughs> my own perfect. Dog. Um, but no, it was just this over And it wasn't this, this feeling of like, oh my God, I'm so excited. This is what's going to happen. It was a, I think we're going to get married. I'm, I'm pretty mm. sure that's going to happen now. Then I made, I made up, an, I made up a, a sort of white line and said my brother was in London. So I, because I was down in Cheltenham at the time. And um, I came up to see you, didn't I? I was like, oh, I'm seeing my brother. So why don't I come see you as well? I was not seeing my brother. I was just going That's to when you him. really like someone though. You invent stuff so you can yeah. spend more time. Like that's really cute, I think. Um, Absolutely. And I'm, I'm kind of talking, because I was a, such a big fan of the show in the beginning. I'm talking like everyone that's listening will know. But we should explain to people, Ollie, what your coming out story was. Um, because I don't want to say that you weren't honest with yourself, but your sexuality kind of played out. And I wondered when you were playing a straight love life on screen, I wondered how you were coping off screen because that's something we never knew. And interesting. I, d- I, don't I, don't, if- I don't think anyone's really ever asked that question before, which is interesting. Um, so it was October 2010 when I signed my contract for Made in Chelsea and I was going out with a girl called Gabriella. Um, we had a lovely relationship, to be fair. We had a lovely time, but I knew in the back of my mind that there was something else that I needed to explore and that was my sexuality with men. And I didn't quite know how to handle that or where to go, but just so happens at the same time as my mindset was going, mm, I don't know what to do about this relationship, um, the cameras started rolling. And I remember we sat there in a bar and Binky turned around to one of the producers and said, you know, Ollie thinks he's bisexual. And I was like, Binky, that's not for you to say. My God, I was like, that's so bad. Anyway, you suddenly, under the bus. Yeah. And suddenly, suddenly light bulbs went up and eyes were like, oh my God, this is incredible. That's a really big story. Anyway, time went on and I decided that it was not right to be with Gabriella anymore. And I, I I ended it and I knew that I needed to explore being with a man. This wasn't a situation where I knew I was gay at the time. I had said I was bisexual to Binky because that was the absolute truth, I thought. Because that was something that I absolutely knew that I didn't, that there's not a word that you can say where you're, you're, going towards that and you know, I, there's uh, also bisexuality wasn't a thing then it mm. wasn't it wasn't people weren't obviously a thing but people didn't talk about it it was only Duncan James I think from Blue that was talking yeah. about that kind of thing it was very unusual that anyone said that was that. another disappointment for me because I also fancied Duncan <laughs> I know so, Duncan yeah. kissed me on the lips about a year and a half ago saying oh hi darling in my like my 18 year old self I was like oh my god Duncan you know I had the posters everything yeah. <laughs> <It's> so silly <laughs> isn't it <laughs> But yeah, it was, um, I, yeah, I didn't know where to place myself, but I decided to talk about that on camera. I got, I didn't get an awful lot of um, love at that point from a lot of people. Um, women It was always. a different climate as well, wasn't it? Then? Yeah. But because I didn't, 
know what I was and I didn't write myself off that I wasn't still going to have relationships with women that became slightly difficult because I felt that I had put everything on camera and suddenly no one wanted to be with me because I was I was suddenly gay and the mm-hmm. gay guys looked at me and said well he likes girls as well so so I was stuck in that weird limbo that that is what made me feel pretty horrendous about myself mm. I remember I had Alan Carr and Gokwan came to my house one day after Chatty Man and I was in my bedroom. We were all in the bedroom. And Alan thought it would be hilarious to dress up in all my clothes. And because they were Union Jack clothes and stupid jumpers and stuff. And I remember looking back at that moment and I had one wardrobe. One side was um, Made in Chelsea Ollie. The other one was was Ollie Locke. Yeah. And I, I had long hair and I had become, it was only me and Joey Essex that had become really, really, really very recognisable at that point. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Everyone was recognisable, but because we had long hair and Joe was wearing silly clothing, but I, yeah. no guy had hair down to there at the point, so we couldn't go anywhere. Yeah, it's and true. You had this sort of, I don't know, not it's not a gimmick, but it's like almost like a caricature, do you think? Exactly like that. It was Yeah, yeah. It was exactly that. And I so I realised, I think it was only a couple of weeks after that, that I said, okay, enough's enough, because I used to call my hair the anti-poon. Um, anti-poon. anti-poon it was called because no woman would ever want to go near me because I had that long hair so I cut it all off and um, but yes I cut all my hair off and that was um, because I wanted to become in my eyes a bit sexier and I didn't yeah, want yeah. to be that parody that caricature anymore like breaking free so at this point in your life Gareth this so this is like 10 years ago Ollie starts on Made in Chelsea where were you at in your life then? Um, so I have a career in um, sort of fashion. So I work in like business side of fashion sort of stuff. So I, I basically had like thrown myself into my work. And I'd, I'd sort of been coming to terms with this thing where I'm, I was, again, bisexual and sort of knew I wanted to be with men more than I did women. So I, um, and I, I, I struggled so much with coming out. I went to a, like a very competitive rugby school. Like it wasn't really the it wouldn't be an environment where it would be okay to even come to terms with that and sort of, you know, start to process in, come out and, you know, get get everything in order. Um, and I just got to a point where I was like, right, um, would I ever be happy with a woman or will I want to be with a man? Will I ever be able to be with a man? Because I, I didn't feel I'd be able to come out. And, you know, l- luckily um, I, I've come out and it, everyone's happy and you know it's not it, it was, wasn't even a thing you make since struggling with this sort of mindset from about 15 years old you're you catastrophize it and you know so, sometimes it can be very difficult and it's not a very practical thing to do but the longer you live with it the more you catastrophize it so isn't that awful <laughs> though, that term it's not a practical thing to do because it's it's your feelings it's your life but you have to think of so many other people but all you want to be is authentic but it's yeah. awful that there's that thought process behind it and to, to be honest with you and I, I I sort of I threw myself into my work and I was just like you know what this this is going to be me this is where I find my happiness and I'm not going to find it for a relationship and then when I was um about 24 my mum uh, became ill with Alzheimer's and it sort of just shocked everything in my life. And I just thought, you know what? This is happening to my mom. This is happening to my family. And you have one life and you just have to live it and you have to be happy. And I was like, if everything fell away and I didn't have anyone, if I came out, how would I would I be happy? Because I was actually able to be honest and truthful to who I am. And that's how I felt. And I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And I'm just going to pick up the pieces if, if that's what happens. And it was honestly one of the most sort of um 
amazing things to uh, obviously gone through because it's 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 something that you are forced to, well you don't have to overcome it but if you choose to overcome it, it it's something that is intrinsic to the person you are so it is such a sort of experience and it's sort of maybe the person i am now and i we always talk about this don't we with um would if you had a choice would you be born gay like if you, if you could go back and just if, you know take a pill whatever and I wouldn't. I absolutely love the person I am. And I think having gone through that has made me a better person. Do you agree with that for you, Ollie, as well? I've had moments where I've thought differently. Um, mm. And that's absolute truth, is there has been moments where like, would it be easier if I wasn't? Yes, probably. Um, but then, then on the other side, I've never met any person in my life ever that has regretted coming out. Now I know right. we're incredibly lucky by living in Britain and having the laws we have and and mm. equality is is um, getting there. Um, however, in in Britain now, I, I haven't as of yet met anyone that's regretted it. And people, there's a community waiting to look after people, um, mm. and nothing um, I've done in my past has made me feel um, out of that loop. And it's interesting because Gareth, you know, you talk about sort of all those anxieties about coming out and then really going to the other extreme of now you are on Made in Chelsea, which is, is not necessarily completely open because obviously you can still have your boundaries and your privacy. But I wondered if you were always for it or were there times where you were against being in Made in Chelsea and, and being in it as a, as a couple with your relationship? Um, I think it's something we never thought we'd do when we first got together, was it? It was, and it certainly wasn't something else of an interest to me. Um, and it just got further down the line. We got engaged, and actually, I, I can go back a step. Actually, what's quite interesting is when after that day where we drove back from the, the snow from Cheltenham, I think we realised that there was something there, and so I made sure that I didn't put anything on Instagram of Gareth. And if I did, it was always the back of his head. I didn't want people to see. Know, so it was like a guessing game. For like, it, was like, it, was like guy, like, it was It wasn't. It was just. That's just the way I wanted to do it, basically. And it was always. It was lovely, and it was. It was. There was a glimpse, but it wasn't open to everyone. And in the September, we got engaged, and everyone was like suddenly all over the press. It was like I got engaged, and everyone was like, "Well, who too?" Like I remember. We've yeah. seen this. We've seen this for so long, and suddenly we had to sit there and be like, "Well, this is Gareth," kind of thing, and. And it was a, a month or two after that, I said, well, would you like to do a bit on the show? Obviously the show wanted it to happen. Even the show were a bit bemused. One of the other cast members, Louisa, got engaged within the same week. And suddenly that was all like, oh, they had planned the whole thing and it was all exciting and stuff like that. We just did it very quietly and we didn't, there wasn't any pictures of us. We'd done it and we'd released it in the Times newspaper instead of doing mm. like an Instagram photo and no, stuff like that. At all. I think I think for you, because obviously you've had relationships on the show and uh, in the public eye, and you wanted to treat it differently and just thought if it's, it, this seems like something worth having. So we, we definitely protected it for, for the first part, didn't we? Yeah. And so that was, we certainly, yeah, protected it as much as we possibly could. But now I think at that point we realised that the position we are in could help an awful lot of people. And so that's mm -hmm. when we decided to um, put the rest of our journey on camera. Yeah. For, faced with the opportunity, it, it's one of those things in life where you just think, you know what? You're, this isn't something that comes on every day and it's an opportunity to experience something new. And then secondly, at the same time, the way that I always treat it is there's stuff going on in our lives and around us that is important to talk about and raise awareness for. And I mm. sort of treat it as, and, and I think I'll, I'll talk like about our relationship. I'll talk about my mom's illness. I'll talk about whatever on the show. And I don't mind people seeing me upset because I'm not afraid of my emotions. And, you know, I'm, I'm 
balanced in the way that I am happy to sort of talk about and present it. And I think given the platform we have with Chelsea, I think it's a really important thing for us to do is to try and do something meaningful like that. Mm. You do on the show, you come across as best friends first and foremost, and you've got this like amazing united front. Please tell me it's not real. Is that genuine? Are you genuinely like that all the time? Because we have jobs that aren't usual, as none of us have normal, real jobs. And, and I mean, it does help that we're just always around each other. And we we seem to make each other laugh and have fun and go we're on dog walks every day and, and always on our phones doing different calls and meetings and stuff. And that, it's it, what works for us. It wouldn't work for lots of couples. Mm. But, um, we're rarely two metres apart. and that's like when when we first started dating so i i was running a company down in the cotswolds and from our house in fulham down to there it was a two and a half hour drive and i used to do that five days a week there and back so five hours in the Mm. car and i would leave in the morning i wouldn't want to leave him and i'd come back in the evening so excited to see him oh i I, I just enjoy being around very sweet and it's it's even and sometimes you're like right okay i'm gonna do my own thing i'll go to the gym or do whatever and afterwards i'm like after an hour or two i'm like oh i want to go back and see him now There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's talk about this new chapter in your lives then. So it was March this year that you announced in public that you were planning on starting a family together. It was the good news we all needed (laughs) with the terrible, terrible year we'd have. And you said that you'd found a surrogate um, and your surrogate lives in the US, right? No, UK. She lives in the UK. Okay. But um, the egg donor, we had to go to America. So Explain was, the whole thing because I feel like I understand and know it, but I might not. And for people listening that don't understand, how how do two men have a baby? Tell us all the ins and outs. IVF for anyone is incredibly difficult. We assumed that you kind of go down it, go down that route, and you go, yes, you tick all the boxes, and suddenly it's absolutely perfect. And you go, thank you very much. And at the end of those a year or so, you you end up having your baby, and it's all exciting and wonderful, and you've got your family. I think we were a little bit naive to the fact well, I think, that it was a I think bit there more is not, than there's that. not the information isn't readily available out there, and it's it's a very convoluted, very you know windy path in order to find out the exact details of IVF and people's experiences because it is something people don't really talk about, and that's one of the reasons that we we sort of thought we're sharing our journey the way that we are. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of channels you can go with that we now know. If someone wants to start an IVF journey. Um, you wouldn't know where to go easily. No, why though? Why is it so secretive? And I think for, without sounding a, a bit funny, there's a lot of money to be made from people not knowing it. 
sadly. Mm. Uh, well, there people, are companies there, that, there are companies out there that are quite happy with the with it all being a bit of a grey area because then they get to sort of capitalise off it. But there are also non-profit charity organisations that will help you through, but there's a lot of information to find out. So that's what's... We, um, were, we were incredibly fortunate because we've had a few um, close friends who have gone through surrogacy. And mm. they, although don't get, don't get me wrong, we did we did get tripped up by a few hurdles and we did end up being on the wrong path in some place and wasted a lot of money. But um, they... Can you get ripped off then and exploited? Yeah, yeah, you can. Completely, completely. And um, it's, the thing in the UK is um, you, uh, surrogacy has to be altruistic. So you don't pay for a surrogate, whereas obviously in the US it's a commercial enterprise. And they say they don't want it to become a commercial enterprise over here because of all the sort of questions that, you know, is someone doing it for the right reasons? Are they, you know, so people can take advantage of it that way. But unfortunately, because it is so convoluted on one side, there are these companies that are sort of advising and taking advantage of people not knowing and it being very convoluted and charging a lot of money where it doesn't really need to happen. Mm. I thought it was really good what you did actually on your platform. So on social media, you literally posted a video of the egg being fertilized. And I thought it's an amazing thing to be able to see. Also, the way you did it was very informative. And I thought, actually, it's not really what you expect to see on Instagram. Is it really? You know, I've seen people's like lunch with the eggs. (laughs) You know, that's (laughs) what we see on Instagram. But this was actually like pretty educational and quite cool. I did say at the beginning, um, when I announced the fact that we were going to, I said, we are going to take you on our journey. And I think people went, oh, mm. lovely. We'll wait for the, someone to say, oh, we're pregnant kind of thing. But no, yeah. I really meant it. Um, so one of the things I think that you've done on social is like you said, you took the fans along, you're very open, but it hasn't all been gushy, gushy, all about the highs. It has been about the lows as well. And I think it's kind of been really important about breaking the stigma around IVF. And um, unfortunately, your first attempt did fail, which, you know, I've never been in that position and I don't know how deflating, disappointing and, and painful that must have been. And I wondered how that was as a couple doing that publicly and if you were raring to go again or if you had to have a, a sort of time of healing and a bit of a pause. We didn't want a time of healing, weirdly. And that was, it was a weird situation where, um, and people are yet to watch this, but Maiden Chelsea starts again quite shortly. And we were really excited about putting that exciting news on camera that it would worked and we're pregnant and we assumed that was where it was going to go. So we invited all the cameras in and everything was all happy and we were all smiling and we had the Sarah got on the phone and we heard the first tone of her voice, the oh first God, little entry. We'd sat there and I, I'm i normally wildly pragmatic and I was sort of like, God, I'm even getting emotional. And I was like, God, if this isn't, if this hasn't worked. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to hear it straight away from the surrogate's voice. And then we, she phoned and then I just, I just knew from an instant and Ollie looked at me and my eyes, my face dropped and Ollie looked at me and his eyes just widened. And I was like, oh, we're going to have to do it. This is, this is going to be really bad news. And at that point, my, I sort of put my emotions like behind me and I was like, right, okay, I need to look after Ollie now. And I just saw him break as he found out that, because from us starting this to actually try, going to our first attempt, it only took us six months. Because luckily, like we had some great advice, like everything sort of fell into it. So it was such a whirlwind and there wasn't really much time to think about what if, what if it doesn't work first time? And right. we were completely new to it. So we didn't understand, we don't have the experience of how difficult it can be. And we were sharing it all the way along the way because we want to talk about it. And British law doesn't allow you to um, trans solicit or find or whatever a, a surrogate. They won't mm. allow you to do it. 
Um, so you can't, so basically it's all about word of mouth. There are agencies that you can go through, but you're not allowed to say, oh, hi, I'm a surrogate kind of thing. I want to be like, it's a bit, you can't sit there and be like, oh, I'm looking for a surrogate. And someone's like, yeah. okay, we'll do it. Um, so that's a bit of a difficult situation. Luckily, um, our fabulous surrogate DM'd us after watching an episode of Chelsea. Ah. Um, we got to know her very so well. So that's organic, see? That's so allowed. That's, yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. That's... So moving slightly on, we should, we've been talking about, you know, how you use your platforms and the different things that you both do. And Gareth, you know, one of the things you've been documenting um, is the pain that you and your family um, have gone through and, and continue mm-hmm. to go through with your mum having Alzheimer's. Um, I know you mentioned it earlier in the podcast. It, it's actually been 11 years, is that right? Yeah. So my mum had early onset Alzheimer's. Um, and yes, yeah, so it's been 11 years. And I think um, one of the things that I find really interesting about you talking about it is it's kind of highlighting how it affects the whole family. And I suppose people of our age, it isn't really a discussion that happens very often in our circles until you're personally affected by this. And I think what we see with you is is the impact this illness has on, on sort of the wider group. What do you hope to do with your platform and what do you sort of hope it brings to the viewers? I just, I just hope again. It's just raising awareness for it. Like when I, when I've talked about it, for me, it's a very cathartic thing to do. And as I said, like I don't like putting my emotion, I don't mind putting my emotion out there. And um, it's a thing, especially during lockdown, where I couldn't go and see my mum because she's in a care home. Um, Was that the whole I, year you didn't see her? Eighteen months. Oh gosh. And yeah, and also the the journey is such that, um, and this is the thing: you lose a family member, and it just reshapes your family. And mm-hmm. What I didn't expect at the time when I first heard that news was just what it was going to do to my family. You know, my my dad then loses his life partner. My parents have been married 42 years and rarely spent any time apart. My brother lives over in Jersey. He can't come back and see my mum all that often. And he my, can't see my dad. I'm in London. We all have stuff going on. So it's this thing that sort of, you really take a pivotal piece away from your family. Mm. And it's amazing charities like Alzheimer's Society and stuff like that, which throughout the process you I end up learning about but in the beginning I think about these things and I think right all these charities are there for research and things for drugs I mean it's not just that these these charities are there for families as well mm-hmm. and they're there to help you understand and help you sort of try and repair what you have left um and that that's the sort of biggest lesson I had going through and that's that's why I, I'm an ambassador for Alzheimer's Society I right. always like talk about them and stuff because I think if I had spoken to them in the beginning, then, you know, you, 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 it sort of helps with the awareness of the entire thing. Mm. It's great you're an ambassador for the charity, though, because that will bring a whole new audience to them they might not have been able to to reach, you know, so that's that's really positive. Yeah, throughout COVID, um, obviously all these charities are massively underfunded and, you know, you don't have the events they were doing, they don't have, mm. you can't see the sort of uh, memory walk and things like this, which makes them a lot of money. Um, so then they, they just start to dwindle. So it, it also for that reason, I thought it was just important just to try and help as much as I could. Mm. What are your plans for the future as individuals, as a couple? Um, because I feel like your lives seem very glamorous online and, and on the show. And I wondered, is what's your day-to-day life like? Is it is it like that? Today, it definitely involves going for a dog walk, um, clearing up poo, booking an injection for the, for the puppy, um, a friend of ours has rung and asked if we want to go to Ikea later. Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Brockett wants to go to Ikea. I'd love to go to Ikea later. Um, 
And um, so actually today's not the most glamorous day, glamorous day there is. You are our glamour today. Yeah. Good. I'm going um, to be doing the washing straight after this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're not filming today either. So we've got a bit of a day off, which is great. Um, however, yeah, life every day is all a bit weird. And because we're, the most important thing we're trying to do right now is get back out and sort this IVF out. Mm. Now, where we want to go back and you did mention before, do you want to go quickly straight back on it kind of thing? We did, but suddenly Mexico went on the red list. Right. Where we had to go to go, where in Cancun is where all the all the embryos are right now. So we're trying to find a company to bring them over to Cyprus. You're not right. allowed to bring them back to England because um, we uh, bought the eggs, basically. That was one of those things you can do. The, the in re- England, you're not, if you can't, you can buy the eggs for 750 pounds. And they they consider that a bit of a donation, kind of an altruistic mm-hmm. way of kind of, yeah, just basic expenses. However, you're not allowed to see the person's face. Right. And you we also, want to know... You also all, don't get any of the health profiling that we get. Yeah, not America. that many details. We want all the details. We wanted to see photos of the biological mother of our child. Yeah, of course um, you would, yeah. And so by doing that, you have to go to America or Mexico or... Or, or different countries to do that. There are lots mm. of companies in Europe that absolutely just won't allow it, mm. um, which I find weird because personally, when you go to America and you buy the eggs and it's an, it's an agreement that you take those, they have no rights to the children as as you move on kind of thing. They'll never meet them. And although you've got profiles, you get to see it, show photos back in the day, they have no rights mm. um, as soon as they sign the contracts and take the money. However, in Britain, um, the child is allowed to meet the mother at 16. Oh, wow. Okay, um, I didn't know that. As soon as, yeah, as soon as they were after 16, kind of thing, they can go and find the mother if they want to, which for me, it seems a bit odd because actually... The child, isn't it? It's that the mum, the mother has nothing, no concerning about it. Yeah. I think the, the thing to remember in also going this process is biology has nothing to do with being a parent. Mm-hmm. Of if, course. If, if, and you look at, you see it in the animal kingdom where animals take on someone else's if, they, if they're struggling or whatever and it, it's how you raise some of the, the love and the um, journey that you go on with them that makes you the parent if you're you're basically an elder in a sort of position of responsibility to someone so it's it's um it's you sort of need to think right okay this person's donated the eggs but it, they haven't actually contributed anything to the parenting of the child yeah, I mean, so, I couldn't agree with you. In a straight relationship, you see some terrible biological parents and some phenomenal step-parents, you know, mm. who that child absolutely sees as dad or, or mum. So, you know, why why would that be any different in, in the gay world and in the surrogacy world? Mm. We absolutely we know how much love we've got to give and we're just incredibly excited for that journey to hopefully work in the future. I mean, hopefully it'll work second time. If mm. not, we'll keep going. And we can discuss adoption, we can discuss other stuff, but I, I absolutely want, I want one day, absolutely, we need to love the family to be as soon as we possibly can because we both know we're ready for it. Ah, yeah. oh, well, I am wishing you so much luck and love uh, for the future. And hopefully that future involves making babies and living a really happy life together because I do feel like you totally deserve it. So I think I'm not alone in in saying that we all want this for you. And hopefully we will get to watch your journey as well, however it uh, pans out. I promise you, you'll very much all be going on the journey with us. And and though we've had a, a slight step back, we are going to be doing everything we possibly can and certainly uh yeah you'll all be on it with us 
Oh, thank you so much, both of you, for chatting to me today. I know this podcast is probably going to help lots of different people at different points in this journey or people who are supporting other friends or family that are embarking on this journey. So thanks for always being as, as honest as ever. Always. Thank you, thank you very much for having us. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials.